Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Wampa Radio. It is a podcast about Star Wars Unlimited TCG. This is episode 11. Not bad. Wow. Yeah. Congrats. Oh. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, you get all, yeah. you basically, you, you're grandfathered in, Doa, to all, oh. all the things that we have acquired along the way. Thank you. Um, I, you know, we obviously on this show, we dig into all the headline strategies and discussion points you want to hear about for uh, Star Wars card gaming. You know, mostly unlimited right now. We might talk about a different card game at some point, a different Star Wars card game. I doubt it, though. Not for at least another hundred episodes. <laughs> or somehow in this one. But yeah, we're also- maybe this one. We're, we're going to talk about something specifically for Star Wars Unlimited that we can't talk about for the other card games, which is how we can entice competitive players to join a circuit, because we know that that's going to be kind of a, a big deal for folks. And let's not pull any punches. We know that's also uh, potentially a soft spot for famous. Uh, <laughs> I was going to do it again. FFG. We're just going to go with FFG. But anyway, uh, before I make that mistake again, let's uh, go to the Wampa Cave Pole of the Week. <laughs> Smooth. So you almost said f- Final Fantasy. Is that where... Yes, every, every time. And you want to know what it is? It's not even just specifically Final Fantasy. It's in my mind, I go back to being in middle school and I'm playing Final Fantasy VIII Triple Triad, the card game from oh, that. Oh, yeah, dude. And so So good. That it was. It was so good. It was like it's in the MMO the actual, now. Uh, Final Fantasy VIII, really. Like, let's be honest. Final Fantasy VIII had two cool things: triple triad and doing combos with Zell that I probably could still do just based on memory. I really like the combat system in that game. Can we just yeah. go in a rabbit hole on Final Fantasy? Like, where you had to like <laughs> absorb the magic as items, yes, kind the, of out of enemies. Yeah, the, the it was a cool thing. combat system. Yeah. It was neat. I Flake has no idea what we're talking about. Well, I've never about. played a, fi- a Final <laughs> Fantasy game in my life. I had it for... Look, what? Not... Okay, so I had it for NES, the first one. And keep in mind, mm-hmm. I was like eight okay. years old, seven or eight years old. But turn-based combat when you're like that age is not enticing. There's, you know, like it, it really wasn't my jam back then. So I just threw it mm. in a box or whatever and never played it. Um, okay. And ultimately after that, I was... Um, I didn't have a PlayStation. I had an N64, so I never played it on there. And everything that I I had afterwards, because it, it didn't exist for Xbox, right? It wasn't an Xbox title. It wasn't Microsoft. No, not no. not for a while. No, they were pretty Sony exclusive uh, until they made Crystal Chronicles with Nintendo again for GameCube. I think is the first time they yeah. cross platformed, or maybe or, like Blue was Blue Dragon Square as well for the original I think, Xbox. I think Blue Dragon was. Uh, okay. I was gonna say yeah. I think that. If you were trying to avoid the Sony exclusive era, you had to play either Nintendo, like Flake said, or mm. uh, SNES, right? Super Nintendo also had um I, I got lucky. So the reason that I fell in love with Final Fantasy is I had an uncle that was in the military, and he brought me back, like, the good ones from Okinawa, and that's how <laughs> I fell in love with the series. So, like, cool. four, four, five, and six all have a special place in my heart because that's where I started, but... Uh, yes. That is that is a great place to start. I I was enamored with them back in the Super Nintendo era. Just like I don't know, man. I was like, you know, eight nine years old, and I loved turn based stuff. So it's some people like it, but uh, and then that just extended <laughs> into other consoles. To to this day, I still play turn based single player RPGs. My sometimes. my favorite Final Fantasy of all time is still Tactics. Oh, like, oh Tactics. tactics. Is, that's good. I've, I I kind of put that in a different category. 
but I, we should I, do yeah. we should do a RPG podcast at some point. We maybe. should. Maybe that's I, what we're learning from this little chat. That is a not me thing. Absolutely. I have, not. Uh, <laughs> hey, to bring it back home, I have the Star Wars tabletop role playing game on my hey. shelves right now. Yo. Hey. <laughs> right, right here. Here's the 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 what it, what was it the thirtieth anniversary uh, reissue that they did? Look yeah. at I, I got I got uh, mine's a little bit older I think, but oh okay. Well, you've got like that's a, like an updated version of the is that the D six one? Uh no no this is oh the so D20. this is the this is I do the have old, the D six over like, there too. But... This is the old D old D six one. Yeah, yeah, I love this one. Hey kids, this, this was the. I will first, turn this car around. Gen. I swear to God, I will turn this. Because <laughs> we're talking about Star Wars, all right? I yeah, know. Yeah, I know. The point it's... is Star Wars, all right? The point also, is Star I Wars. I just realized because <laughs> I've changed my office thing around, I don't have anything in the background Star Wars yet. So I'm going to grab Darth Malgus and fix that. Uh, Look at. I actually see this Rebel Flight helmet replica thing. I yeah. actually won this play in a Star Wars card game tournament. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You got to yeah. hold that because I got to recenter you as you you're going to go way off. Uh, we're going to go way off camera. This is some, oh. uh, this is some on the fly right now. Well, I can go grab it. it, too. Oh, no, no. You could point point at it right now. I'm sliding you over. There it is. There it is. Yeah. Beautiful. Yep. Beautiful. Um, so look, I if I were I'm, I was never a role playing fan and I this is coming from I was professionally involved in Gwent, the Witcher card game, for five years oh boy. and never played the RPG and knew who none of the characters. Oh, no. So, uh, yeah, okay. I got through it. It's all good. When I come, never played the Witcher either, actually. Yeah. Well, look, yeah. when you guys are all talking about... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Charmer just comes locked and loaded. When, when, when you guys there are talking is. about Star Wars roleplay, to me, it is every day of my life is a gigantic Star Wars roleplay. If you guys are showing sure. off the books, I, if I had time, I'd go change into my Han Solo costume, which I have with a replica gun the whole nine yards but nice. we do have a wampa cave pole that uh charmer stumbled into uh we got there we did yeah. get there we got there <laughs> uh and the cave pole of the week uh which can be voted upon uh, beginning basically every sunday at wampa radio on twitter the cave pole of the week was with the reveal of the imperial star destroyer star destroyer relentless what capital starship of the Rebels side, do you most want to see in Star Wars Unlimited? Your options were Home 1, the Tantive 4, the Redemption, or the Profundity. Now, before we get to the actual digits associated, uh, Charmer, what was your pick mm. on this poll? I voted for Redemption. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I know it's a bit of a hipster pick, but I... I felt like that was the one that called to me the most. I, I felt like I knew who the winner was going to be, and I was not wrong. But I, I have a soft spot for the redemption. You know, uh, when we were when we were putting together the poll, uh, I, I brought up redemption because uh, that's also my my favorite alliance capital ship. I just think, and it's not the most important ship. It's a medical frigate, right? But like, it's uh, it just looks so cool, and it, to me, it always looked looked like a very appropriate. Uh, giant spacecraft because it didn't you know that thing would never work in an atmosphere right it's it's got no aerodynamicness to it all it's got this like big end then a really thin skinny end and then a big engine section and i'm like that just looks like a cool genuine spacey spaceship i always <laughs> loved that ship when i was a kid I, it just looks so cool i also liked it so the reason that i voted for it is one it has a very unique appearance just like you said so i think it would stand out really well for card art uh but yeah. i also just felt like because as you said it's the medical frigate it 
has a soft spot for me in card games because I felt like it's the one you could emulate in game mechanics the easiest because it's centered around being the healing ship. I felt like there's yeah. a lot of cool things you could do with that in terms of like game mechanics. So look, the that's, one that's why I voted. The one it. thing about the redemption, which you guys are praising as uh, a space, the space aesthetic and how it doesn't have any aerodynamics or whatever. The one thing that about it that really bothered me is imagine being some schmuck that's like at the bottom end of the front of the ship and your commander or your commanding officer is like hey uh putz we need this like data whatever uh okay sir where is it located it's located on deck like 42 uh 42 foxtrot and you're like you're looking at the schematic and you have to go up you got to go walk about 17 <laughs> miles and then you got to go down and get it and then come back and it's just it doesn't make sense no no no, no. well look that's why turbo the, lifts man turbo lifts sure the turbo lifts are great but that's why the borg cube or the borg spheres were like the most efficient because there there was no part of the ship where you were further furthest away from another part everything was like equidistant you know like to a degree um and ultimately look i love the redemption the redemption has a really cool look the nebulon b frigate is a really cool looking you know i, I don't know what, what what you call it like a utility capital Cap ship capital ship yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just a capital ship yeah. i voted for the tantive because i have a soft spot for the Carillion corvettes they it's just classic they just look yeah. cool and if you want a cool factoid yeah. about the Carillion Corvette, it was the original design of what the Millennium Falcon was supposed to look like. Oh, really? I didn't know that. And I believe that is uh, huh. that. I've read that. Um, I hope that somebody who's listening can confirm this. But it just looks like I mean cool. the, the whole the whole the whole facet of the Millennium Falcon being like one of the fastest ships in the galaxy. You look at a Carillion Corvette, right? Like the Tantive Four. Look how mm -hmm. many engines in the back of it. The whole thing is all ass. It's just all caboose. It just it hauls ass. You know, it's it's a I it it's kind of referential almost to uh, George Lucas being a big fan of like hot rods and you know doing uh, other other movies and things around that. Like he's always liked you know the tuning up and raising things. And Millennium Falcon's indicative of that, but also a ship with just a ton of engines on the back that makes sense too. But when did what, maybe you can answer this question? When did we stop calling it Carillion Corvettes? Because that's what I grew up with. Now people call it the blockade like they call that class of ship a blockade runner. Which, which, uh, that somewhere through the Star Wars timeline, they decided to stop calling it Carillion Corvette and start calling it Blockade Runner. And I think Carillion Corvette just sounds way cooler. I the mean, obviously, yeah, and obviously, like Corvette is a word from like our our world, I guess. So maybe that's why they wanted to get away from a little bit, and maybe they retconned it to not be built on Carillia, I guess. But uh, I don't know. I always thought that was way cooler. I don't like Blockade Runner. That's such a it's so generic, you know. According to Wikipedia, they are officially <laughs> oh. the CR90 Corvettes, just oh, also okay. known as Carillion Corvettes so or they still are? Blockade Runners. Okay. So I'm guessing that it's probably just supposed to be a representation of like different slang for vehicles. I guess. So I know, I know that you know it's it's inevitable that we're going to get this card in this card game. Mm -hmm. There, there is going to please Fantasy Flight call it. The Carillion Corvette, or call it by its actual, like, uh, you know, ship model name that that Charmer just told us. Like, please call it that. Please don't call it the Blockade Runner. That's that's Zoomer ship lingo there. Yeah, it, call it, it the <laughs> Carillion Corvette. Its true name. It's like calling a Jedi lightsaber swing guy. It's like we get yeah. it. It's like calling it by what it does. You know, um, it's like calling us three loudmouth guys with no cap. No. It's like wrong? calling the Millennium Falcon a castle runner. 
True. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's that's the same thing. You can't do that. It yeah. doesn't make sense. But uh, the redemption. It's the YT thirteen hundred transport. The last yeah. one was the profundity. So let's go. I'm going to give you the numbers mm, okay. right now. Home one, which was essentially the flagship uh, at the Battle of Endor, command Cal Star Cruiser. Yeah. Commanded by Admiral Akbar. Yeah, Mon Calamari Star Cruiser got forty nine point one percent of the votes. And part of this, I'm wondering how much of the influence off this was just how much of an absolute house the home one was in Star Wars CCG. It was the mm. the intimidating capital starship tantive four at 27.3 percent the redemption 18.2 percent and way behind um is the profundity at five and a half percent and for those who might not know what that ship is it is the commanding ship uh the flagship at the battle of scarif that was commanded by Mm. admiral radis so you know the the whole scene of like patch me through to one of the blockade runners or one of the hammerhead corvettes and then that guy what what he was yeah. his whip i think a lot of people just didn't know cuz like they i don't think do they ever even refer to it uh well i mean they don't refer to home one as home one in jedi so i guess that's like a thing but people have got a lot longer to you know know about home one being that mon cal star cruiser right where profundity is a, is a fairly new you know capital ship to the star wars lexicon so i think a lot of people just didn't know um i love that space battle in that movie by the way but i'm a sucker for space battles anyway so you know Dude. Throw a bunch of ships at me in the Star Wars universe, I'm going to be happy. The, the Also, that battle, I think, was the first introduction of, um, like, the ion cannon weapons. Because they just, like, the, the Imperials had no clue when they got absolutely just smoked by ion weapons. And remember, he's like, that Star Destroyer is disabled. And, like, because they're like, I don't know, our electric, our, like, our... Our mm. electro- electronics are out. We don't know what to do. I got to double check on that. But that was... Well, I know that was... It was the first big fleet engagement between the Rebel Alliance and the Empire. Mm-hmm. So if there were a weapon that hadn't been used at that point, that would have been when it would, would have been used first, I suppose. We're open to corrections. So if anybody's out there who wants I mean, to double check... I mean, for me, the ion cannon thing goes back to and, and obviously rogue one predates empire but obviously they use ion cannons on hoth to disable the star destroyers mm-hmm. um which if they had used that technology earlier you'd think um you'd think they would have known that but then again vader does talk about uh, captain nita being kind of a uh, kind of sloppy right no it was admiral ozel that ozel. Uh, came in ozel, yeah. he came out of hyperspace too quickly <laughs> or uh, too close or something like that right i can't remember exactly why but you know, he should. I guess he didn't know about Ion Cans either. Stupid Admiral Ozel. He's dead, though. So, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get his card, I'm sure, at some point, too. His card in Star Wars CCG mm-hmm. is Deploy Zero and uh, Destiny Zero. Like, they gave him, they're like, yeah, you can play him for free, but he's an, <laughs> he's an absolute doofus. Well, here's here's a great cave poll for, for next time, maybe, or for sometime in the future. Who is the most chokeable Imperial <laughs> officer in Star Wars? Because a lot of them got choked. Who deserved it the most? Who's the most chokeable Imperial officer? There you go. There's plenty of options. I mean, Kr- yeah, Krennic, Ozzel. Um, yeah, there's like five in Empire alone. <laughs> Mahdi. Nita. Nita? Yep. Oh, God, mm-hmm. yeah. So many. Quite a few. Bit it. Well, there's maybe. four options right there, yeah. <laughs> We hit right. the Twitter Max, haven't we? Yeah, that's oh, it. I'm sorry, the X I, X Max. The no, X Max. first of all, we're never doing that. <laughs> we're just we're just not. Oh. No, thank you. <laughs> this is this is uh this is a PG show. Excuse you, sir. We're not Star Wars doing... is PG, and that's where all this comes from. Yeah. Okay. I'll I'll I'm call right. it X. I'm right with it's it. X Wing at some point. I'm in. 
Okay, I'm in. Uh, all right, so there you have it. If you want to uh, contribute to our next Wampa Cave poll, which apparently is going to involve BDSM or something like that in the future. With well, the... I didn't say anything about that. Well, that... I, I was just referencing the movies, man. <laughs> We're going I don't to... think there was any amorous... Uh, aims of what Vader was doing to the admirals. It looked pretty punitive to me, but but that's neither here nor there. Just picture one of the admirals being like, what, what, what? just goes to his like goes to his lieutenant. Hey, watch this. Hey, watch no. this. Vader, the report is going to be late. <laughs> uh, he's like, oh, and he sleeps. He's like, oh god, it needed that. It was better than coffee. Woo, love it. Love this job. All right, uh, let's get to the headlines. Getting all hot and bothered. <laughs> Uh, let's get to the headlines. Uh, this week in Star Wars Unlimited, uh, we want to kick off our headlines with, well, we had one hell of a giveaway uh, because, Charmer, you had some pretty hot sauce to uh, to dish out. Yeah, I collected some promos from Gen Con and got the devs that were in attendance at Gen Con to sign them and decided that instead of keeping them, we should just give them away. And then... Cool. I was nice, and I got you some, too, and I sent them in the mail. So if you haven't gotten them yet, they should be coming. Uh, thank you very much. I'm so much. excited. I am thank very you, excited. I, yours, mean, I, I should let you know, yours are not signed, though. I only got the giveaway one signed for, okay. uh, you know, for making the, the fans feel special. Watch this, Doa. When they release the Krillian Corvette card and they name it correctly, <laughs> then that'll be a card worth signing. Doa, Man, there we go. watch this, Doa. Ready? Yeah. Uh, okay. Char- Charmer, are yours signed? No. Oh really? Really? That's well, okay. Well, I only hey, got the ones. A man I of integrity. Only got the ones signed that I was going to do for the giveaways, and there's nice. a couple of reasons for this. In all actuality, one, I did want to do something special for the viewers. Two, I didn't want to make assumptions about what you guys wanted to do with your copies. So if you want to get them signed in the future, you can. But I didn't want to pre-sign them on your behalf, and I also just didn't want like they were very busy at gen con and i didn't want to be like hey can you sit down and sign like four copies of each of these promos you know what i mean yeah. so i had them do it one time and then i thought you know let's do that as the giveaway because those are like the really cool ones that's great it's very kind that is a very uh yeah that's appropriate so thank you so much to to you mr charmer uh, so as the wheel spins, the animation is going. Who is the winner, Doa, of this wonderful giveaway? It is uh, Citizen Keen of StarWarsUnlimitedDatabase.com, yeah. according to my yeah. notes here. So congratulations. Yeah, that is awesome. Congratulations. Also, besides just uh, the SwooDB.com uh person they are very active in the discord as well so if you're a listener and you haven't joined the star wars unlimited like community discord i highly encourage it there's a lot of really cool people in there and citizen keen is also very active there as well so we appreciate it good person yeah congrats that is that is such a cool uh souvenir that's awesome yeah i mean let's be real in terms of uh again it was random we put the names in the wheel i recorded the wheel there it is uh Mm -hmm. but Everybody deserves a shot, but just for the work that Citizen Keen does for the community, putting out uh, SWUDB.com is is huge. I use it as a resource. You guys use it as a resource. It's just a nice service to the community, so it's nice that uh, he gets a little a little recognition here on the show. But we did get some new card singular 
Um, at a the... surprise, to be sure, but a welcome one. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, uh, again, I just want to make sure everybody knows we are recording this on August 16th at 7 p.m. Eastern time. So anything after this, we're not responsible for. But let's dig into this one, because this one was actually a put to a vote. Um, and I honestly was incredibly surprised that everybody was on the same wavelength. Everybody, for the most part, wanted to see a new base. We had options for upgrades, for characters, yeah. for ships, for events. And everybody's like, dude, show us the bases. And I think that everybody kind of had it was it was like this common knowledge, this com this like well-known secret, if if you were, of the fact that bases were gonna have game text. And this one is a nice little appetizer for what I'm hoping is gonna be some some crazy stuff. Yeah, uh, it's well, it's it's kind of neat that it's the security complex on Scarif. I'm glad we're working some Rogue One stuff in there. Um, and it's it's bases. It was such an easy vote for me, and I, I think for all of us because like bases are going to be such a core component of how you build your deck that the abilities the bases give you, you know, might have an impact on this too. Um, and so this one, if we could just, I'm, I'm assuming the card is on the screen. We can just jump into it. It's got an epic action that means a once per game action. Give a shield to a non-leader unit, and a shield prevents basically any amount of one instance of damage to a unit. So uh, you can use an action to essentially save a unit that you feel is going to be taking damage with your opponent's next action. Um, so that is a potentially a very, very strong thing. Now, interestingly enough, uh, this base has five less health than the other bases, the generic ones we've seen. Um, and I think that's an interesting trade-off, too, that you have these generic bases with uh, their certain... Um, I'm trying to remember the technical term for it. But uh, there's a certain color associated with each of them, right? Aspect. Um, yeah. aspect. aspect. There we yeah. go. I knew it started with A. I couldn't think of it for some reason. Aspect. Um, so you can go for a certain aspect with a little bit more health and uh, no ability, or it looks like you can make that trade-off, take five less health, have an ability. I'm really curious to see where the other abilities kind of go here. Are we going to see abilities on the one that haven't shown it yet? Um, you know, do we know that's the final version of that card? Maybe you know Charmer or not, but uh, I think there's a lot to sort of unpack here. Yeah, my understanding is everything that's getting revealed is finalized and set in stone. Okay. Uh, that's part of their release cadence. I know that uh, some of the developers did interviews with other content creators while at Gen Con. Uh, Xander, for example, he did a wonderful interview, and they had talked about the fact that they have a very specific cadence for all of their card reveals going forward. Mm -hmm. Like he said, I can tell you exactly what week each of the different cards are going to reveal. So they have a plan. And it's my understanding that once a card is revealed, it's for sure like set in stone. But okay, cool. I suspect that we're going to get one for each aspect so that we've got a generic one. I also noticed that this one is a rare. So it's entirely possible that mm. each one also each aspect might have one rare. Uh, I'm guessing that's probably balanced for limited reasons because this is a pretty powerful effect. I know it doesn't seem like it on paper, but there's a reason you're giving up five health for this because... There's a lot of sticky situations where because of the back and forth nature of this game, you can really put your opponent in a, a bit of a pickle, right? If they are attacking in a certain way and then you use your ability on your base to give a shield to a unit that they were getting ready to finish off and maybe because of the sequencing of their turn, they don't have something small they can sacrifice to peel that shield off, then you've just stopped their turn. You stopped everything they wanted to do. Similarly, 
if you deploy a sentinel and they start to damage it, but they only have like one unit back and now you give it a shield. Well, now you've locked up that lane for a whole turn. There's a lot of things that just having this on the board to start the game at all times will change the way your opponent navigates turns because they always have to ask that question. OK, what if while I'm in the middle of doing my two or three actions this turn, they magically drop a shield on something? How does that change what's going to happen? So this is in my opinion, I think a really powerful base, and I'm not surprised it's a once per turn, or excuse me, once per game uh, action, the epic action, because this is this is a really big swing turn potentially. I looked at this, and at first I was like, "That's it! I'm like that's that's what you're sacrificing five health for." And the more I thought about it, and the more that I I just right now, I mean, listening to both of you discuss it, um, I'm a, I'm a lot more sold on it. Ultimately, it's not that um, like for example, I. I play a lot of um hearthstone battlegrounds there's one leader ability in that game that is literally the leader ability is just get more health than your, your opponent like double your health you have no other abilities you have no other advantages you just have 20 or 30 more health than your opponents um which is ultimately not a very strong pick because the uh, balances and bonuses are are you are, are usually a, you know a big deal in this case however i feel like the five health might actually factor into certain gameplay like if you're playing control or longer grindier games the five extra health people might look at it and be like well it's just a vanilla base it doesn't do anything well i think the five health actually is in itself the built-in bonus that we just didn't see when things were kind of pushed out the five health uh that you're lacking here i want to see what the what like a 20 health base looks like. I want to see what that does. I want to see the kind of punch that those bases will have. Scarif, the security bureau at Scarif, the security um, uh, area in, in Scarif, I think is is pretty cool. I think that's a great start. Uh, I think it's the perfect appetizer for what we might see. Now we know bases can have themselves epic actions, and we might see actions mm -hmm. on bases too that are repeatable that but don't really do a whole lot you know for example it might be something like uh, a base that has 25 health that says like give an experience token to something are you willing to burn an entire action sequence to give something plus one plus one at the expense of five health or you know like these are all up in the air but ultimately the security complex to start off i think is spot on and really good yeah one last thing that i want to highlight about this and another reason why i think this one is particularly powerful is the aspect that this base belongs to is vigilance, and we already know that's a bit mm. of a controlling, grindy aspect that has a lot of access to restore. So starting at five less health also might not be nearly as big of a deal in this aspect because you're going to have so many ways to get your health back if you start taking shots. Very good point. Especially yeah. if it's Krennic who's coming out of the security crowd, the complex, right? And he <laughs> and when he does, he says, are you blind? Deploy the garrison! <laughs> That's all I want. I want a card that says deploy the garrison. You know what I want hmm. so bad? I just realized right now, like we all want digital clients for the games we play because that's the era we live in now. But I want a digital client more than anything because I want voice lines when I play my cards. <laughs> those are hard to acquire. That those, that's a, Those are. To but, get the actual, yeah, that that gets a little bit tricky. But yeah, that, that would be cool. Um. You know, looking at Director Krennic's card, too, I just kind of pulled that up because I was trying to f refresh myself with, uh, you know, what it does. That is a that is a restore card. Um, so he does kind of pair nicely with the base in that way where you have a little bit less health. But if Director Krennic is at the base, he can kind of keep it uh, sustained a little bit more in theory. So there you go. 
flavorful to a certain extent. As long as the garrisons are deployed on time. That's the one thing that he needs. Um, Got to deploy it. So there you have it, friends. That is the only leak, I believe, uh, (laughs) the only spoiler that we got. uh, That is... Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. Hold on a second. This this just in. There's there's a garrison to deploy. Wait, no. Courtesy Jeff Garrison. My mistake. Oh, that's... I didn't even notice. I I, I typed the name here. (laughs) Are you blind? Deploy the Jeff Garrison. (laughs) So ultimately... I late last night. I don't know what time it was, but I you guys could probably check the, the, the our, our chat. I got mm-hmm. an email alert for the Wampa Radio uh Wampa Radio at I think it's Wampa Radio podcast I think at gmail.com. I got to double check. Ultimately, we got we, every now and then we get emails. And I got one that was it just basically it, it said something along the lines of like, "Hey, I thought you'd get a kick out of this." And oftentimes if I get communication like that it's usually something star wars related that i've probably seen before lo and behold this was something that it just it was like a jolt of caffeine through my system because this was the greatest thing i think i had seen in a all week all week so please doa describe to us this this magnificent beautician of a card that was created by jeff garrison Oh, it's it's the long foretold uh, grimace, walking carpet, <laughs> underworld Muppet. Is grimace a Muppet really? But but I digress. Uh, it's it's great. You know, he looks glorious in the purple, much more glorious than I expected. Right. So I could I'd call that a win. Well done, Jeff. <laughs> it, it, it's not just the the purple, like whatever it is about the highlight with the eyes as well. Just really oh, jumps yeah. out at me. <laughs> And yeah. you're right. So uh, on the nice card, eyebrows, it, yeah. it has uh, Underworld, but then the card type is changed to Muppet with an asterisk. And then if you look in really fine print in the bottom right, it says not actually a Muppet. And I just thought that was like a beautiful <laughs> little touch as well. I didn't even notice that. I oh, didn't see that until yeah. right now, actually. Yeah. It's a... Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, okay, so that answered my question. I was like, I don't yeah, think this is a Muppet. a Muppet. But I just Jeff I knows. That. Jeff knows. Yeah. Oh God, Jeff! Thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> we we love this. Uh, we we got some questions for the mailbag through the email as well. So uh, let me tell you the exact email because I think I sound like a doofus if I actually don't know what the <laughs> precise email is. It is uh, Wampa Radio Podcast at Gmail dot com. So if you want to send us go. some questions or some. <laughs> Freaking hilarious alters yeah, like Grimace. Give us Ronald McSolo to go with our Grimace. <laughs> yeah, we do that. We, we need that. And then we need uh, like a Boba Fett as a hamburglar or something like that. <laughs> Boba Burglar. Mayor- then it just makes it sounds like he steals tea. So I don't know. <laughs> Mayor McCheese. <laughs> Mayor McCheese. <laughs> who's, who's the Mayor McCheese of the Star Wars universe? It's, it's kind of Princess Leia, really. She's kind of the... The political authority uh, until, you know, we kind of get introduced to Mon Mothma, I suppose. Or is Emperor Palpatine the Mayor McCheese in a more sinister sense, in a more villainous sense, perhaps? I gotta, I gotta, I gotta sort of, uh, you know, give this one to probably Palpy for, for Mayor McCheese. And sure. just all like uh, this, all the Ewoks are just fry guys. Those little like little walking mops with eyes. Or oh, whatever yeah, they call. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, are we missing any? They, they well, don't do those characters. Storm Troopers have to be more than that. Hmm? Oh, no, the, they don't really. The Storm Troopers, the, the McNuggets were characters too, weren't they? They, Yeah, They're, they were. Yeah. Well, so they weren't, like, 
I feel like the Fry Guy was kind of more of a main in the McDonald's cinematic universe, whereas the McNuggets weren't kind. They were kind of side characters almost, if I remember. The mains of the big mains. The Nuggets. The answer to your question though is the Nuggets are clearly Ewoks. Like, there's no other way. Yeah, they're, they're or just you could make them stormtroopers. I mean, you, know. you could, but yeah. <laughs> see, I can see that. Who's Luke though? Oh, that's a good question. Is yeah. Luke Ronald? No. Well, no, maybe no, no. Han has to be. No, he well, he's yeah. he's the rival, so he's he's got to be the Burger King, right? Luke, yeah, or oh, the he's rival the to Mayor McCheese. Yeah, he could be the Burger King, I suppose. Yeah, no. So in that case, then then Wendy is is Leia. I suppose because she's got like the hair, which is kind of cool. She just has to bun them up. <laughs> okay, if if she is uh, hmm. if Wendy is Leia, then that means that Dave Thomas is Obi Wan. <laughs> oh no, I was gonna say actually, uh, uh, well, Dave, yeah, Dave Thomas could be Obi Wan, but uh, I think uh, uh, Colonel Sanders would have to be Lando because they both got the same like little uh, bolo tie kind of thing going on. Yes. So. Yeah, oh. yeah. Lando would be the Colonel Sanders of this universe. We we've got the whole okay so fast food Star Wars cinematic universe going now. What's funny <laughs> is like when you guys were talking about Final Fantasy and role playing games, and I was just sitting riding shotgun, being like, I have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. The second you talk about like this this long defunct universe of fast food personalities, and I'm like, I know, I know their social security numbers. I know, wow. they, yeah, I know everything about them. You know Wendy's social security number? Yeah, well, she won't stop calling me. I'm just telling you. You got to get a <laughs> yeah. When you file a restraining order, you get a lot of information about the person. So that's a whole new fanfic cinematic universe. There. <laughs> she is. She's crazy. Uh, but that does it for the headlines. Actually, I would say it's kind of a slow okay. week coming out of Gen Con and all this <laughs> stuff. But uh, thank you, yeah. thank you again to Jeff Garrison for uh, sprucing up and doubling our our new our news feature this well week. Well done. Thank you so much. All right. On to the main topic, the 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 meat of the Big Mac. If we're gonna keep this on on the same kind of uh, trajectory sure. here, we want to know how FFG can entice competitive players to actually play this game. And we were talking about like a new golden age. We talked about this last week about mm. all the defunct games and all this new influx of games. And it's difficult because, frankly, us as people who work intimately within this industry even we have we such struggle sometimes to play everything that we want to this is our this is our job part of our career and it's difficult yeah. to actually get everything we want to but ultimately when you're trying to gauge the success of a game a card game specifically you need players who are going to compete at the highest level so today's discussion is what are those elements how can you build a competitive structure or a competitive system that will entice those players that have a plethora of options. Who's got the first uh, first ideas? And, and I think what we should talk about first is what exactly are those attractive elements? I think, to me, um, if I can jump in first, the, the most important part of any competitive environment for a card game, in my opinion, is the local stores. Like, uh, having events are just fun, right? Because a lot of people like to talk about, like, oh, what's the ROI for this game, blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, 99% of players of your game are not going to be approaching it from the hardcore competitive standpoint. They're going to play locals, and they're going to try to win, and they're going to maybe net deck some things and, and tweak things and play with friends. But they're not going to be, like, aiming to go to, like, nationals and worlds and all that. That's a... that 
hyper-competitive side of the game is important, but the most important thing is having a large community that competes and has fun at the local level. So if that bedrock is solid, out of that will grow your hardcore competitive scene, which is obviously like all of our passion. Like we like to see games push to the yeah, nth degree of strategic, you know, depth, right? So that that is the most that's the coolest thing to me. But I think it's important that we all acknowledge that like the the bedrock is the locals, right? So if that is good, um, then I think everything can go well from there, right? All right. So I don't disagree at all i think that having strong local events is incredibly important and not even just from a competitive standpoint but also just from a player onboarding player retention standpoint totally. i think all of those are are very very relevant uh that being said i think because this is as flake mentioned kind of the the golden age or the new golden era or the I don't know, return of the the card games, however you want to word the it. The golden right? like arches, if you will. Yeah, the golden <laughs> arches, if you are. Right? Like, we all know that Bring we're on an upswing and that there's a lot of other games that are coming to market. I think that you have to do something if you're trying to attract that competitive player base. Again, small percentage, uh, but they they do want something flashy, splashy. Usually that's prize pool. Uh Battle Spirit Saga is a great example when they did their uh, announcement for their big open events. So we're not even talking like their pro tour yet, but just like their mm -hmm. launch event for North America was $100,000 prize pool for a game that like was just launching. They were like, day one, we're going to put up that kind of money. And I know a lot of people that were playing Flesh and Blood that, you know, went to that event or uh, even others that like tried to learn the game and tested to decide if it was worth their time, that sort of thing all because of the price tag attached. Now, I I don't, I want to be very clear. I don't think that just relying on prize money is uh, sustainable or good for a game long-term, but I do think that having something that will give those hyper-competitive players something that they feel like they're working toward, that carrot, if you will, is very mm. important. Doesn't even have to be day one. But if they know like, you know, three months or six months after a game launches that there's going to be some pro tour event or some big event uh, with a substantial prize pool, they will pick up a game and and start jamming it. To me, the most important element to this, and, and I, I want to give full credit to what Doa said, because without those grassroots lower end things, people um, are not necessarily going to get their first to like nobody wants their first competitive experience to be like a calling uh like in flesh and blood you know like this mm -hmm. huge three or four hundred person tournament where basically if you lose your first game you're out like nobody wants that experience nobody wants very that intense strength. rules enforcement too it can be very stressful if you're a newer player incredibly in stressful. that environment yeah that's why going to your lgs and playing like your local your your weekly fnm or your weekly armory or whatever like that's that's a great experience because it's low stakes and it's low pressure and there's a lot of leeway especially for new players however what we're talking about is what is going to attract those the 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 spikes out there the, the sharks that want to actually go to these tournaments because to them it's not just a matter of fun. And that's that's an element I think that we need to be realistic about. Mm -hmm. A lot of players aren't, like, for example, a lot of people, like you mentioned, Charmer, where 
some people that we know that went to Battle Spirit Saga to to play in that, they didn't go to it because they were completely enamored with the game. They thought the game was all right, but they went to it because to them it was an, it was another opportunity for them to get a, a solid return on their investment. And that ROI of time and money uh, to learn the game, to buy an entry ticket, they know that they're good enough at a card game that the the hundred dollars they spent on the deck plus the fifty dollars they spent to actually get to to enter the tournament plus whatever, you know, a couple hundred dollars for travel and accommodations for that day, they know that that three or four hundred dollars they spent is going to come back because they're winning at least five to six hundred dollars plus promos, etc. And that, I think, to me, is uh, a, an element where Star Wars U is going to have to play ball in that regard where prizing and prize money is going to fill seats. And every... Every card game that comes out now that wants to develop and nurture a competitive scene, the minimum price tag has always been this like $1 million annual prize purse. Flesh and Blood did it. Magic mm-hmm. did it. Uh, like, And now that that's the bare minimum. Gwent did it. A lot of major card games just come out out of the gate and say, year one, $1 million spread across all these tournaments culminating in the big one. So... I have to say, as as kind of greasy as it may sound, if they're not putting a good ROI on this, then a lot of the competitive players are not going to peel away from the EV of playing um, One Piece or playing whatever else is out there right now. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think something that's attached to that, too, that uh, I, I think about a lot, and obviously there's some bias there, too, is the, the broadcasting element of it, which, you know, we're all familiar with, and that... I, you know, you see these companies spend, uh, put all put these enormous prize pools up, they spend all this money, and then you look at the broadcast and it looks like something that's being done out of like a, a, you know, high school, you know, gymnasium or something, like in terms that you got terrible lighting, terrible microphone quality, like kind of a joke backdrop kind of thing. You like, I mean, if you're putting all this money into your event, you know, make the broadcast look good too. There's lots of people out there, I would say like the three of us that can help make sure that happens. But then there's also a certain level of investment that I think should be done, um, you know, especially with an intellectual property like Star Wars too, right? Because you know there's going to be stakeholders that are going to expect the quality of this at every level to be higher than your average, you know, card game. And so I think making sure that you have a, a solid looking broadcast with you know, people that are entertaining and can promote your game well and tell the stories of those players well is going to be pretty vital, too, in terms of enticing people to watch, first of all, but also want to engage with the game and, and continue to engage with it. So, again, I'm biased. You know, I, I'm an on-camera personality. It's what I do for a living, and I love it. But I'm also very passionate about making sure that the games I like are represented appropriately, you know, in a way that keeps people watching and, and having fun and, and coming back for more. So I think that's another aspect of it, too, that needs attention. I I want to piggyback off of that. I'm also biased, obviously. I think all three of us <laughs> are very upfront that we yeah. love broadcasting, we love card games. But I think that I want to circle back to where Doa started this conversation, which is that bedrock of community participation. And something that he said was like, you know, somebody might go to locals and, you know, they want to win locals and they might net deck something, but they're not really concerned about going to nationals or whatever, right? But you still have to net deck from somewhere. And a lot of that comes from coverage, whether it's Mm -hmm. broadcast or good written format stuff as well. But there's got to be some way that that information is being disseminated. 
if you want players to know what's good or what's trending, there's got to be a way to get that out there. And broadcasts are a great way to do it, in my opinion, just because you're not getting just a deck list of what won. You get to see the deck in action. You get to understand why it's good because you're seeing a skilled player pilot it. So there is so much more to that story. And I, I think that broadcasts do really help one, the community with understanding the game, but also just help tell the story of how you want the game to be played. Obviously, all of the devs, when they pour their heart and soul into this, they have this vision for how games play out. And then being able to broadcast some of the best players in the world playing it in such a fashion, I think, is also a big boon. Because if somebody says, like, hey, what's your game like? You can point to that and say, you know, here's a great match or here's something that stood out. And also... Doa was mentioning, hey, there's all this prize money going in. Uh, I agree. What is the point of like handing somebody a hundred grand for a big event if uh, nobody gets to see it or know about it? Or if when they do get to see it, it's on, you know, a, a webcam from 2010 and it's grainy and there's glare and, yeah. you know, there's no no respect there. Right. Like if you're going to put that much love and care into your game, then there should be as much love and care into how it's presented at all times. So, I, again, I'm also biased, but I do think that a lot of times people kind of undervalue or, or misunderstand the real value that coverage brings because it's not just like, hey, I want to know what happened. It's it's all of those little things that you take uh, for granted. Right. Mm-hmm. I want to bridge the gra- the gap a little bit here from what you led off with, Doa, which was the grassroots small tournaments, to what we arrived at, which was these hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollar tournaments that are have this wonderful production value. And to me, the benchmark for production value is what Magic is doing right now. You know, these incredible sets, these panels, um, you know, a great cast of people that are are doing that. I think that they really do incredible work. Flesh and Blood is kind of catching up to it, but they're still leagues behind. Um, they, they do their best. Um, but again, it's expensive to put these things on. But what I think that mm. is, you know, kind of li- that has to link what you said, Doa, to where we arrived at are multiple options of various tiers. And to me, it's 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 getting your, your first licks at a competitive environment at like your weekly armory or your store championship or your small little kind of, you know, your 40 person tournament or whatever that you that has a top eight, like that kind of mild related stress of, of that kind of small scale thing to then upgrading it to something like a battle hardened or a GP or a calling in flesh and blood or, or a regionals even the, the that when the player base balloons to several hundred to I think the biggest one I think was a pro tour Baltimore for flesh and blood. The calling there was like over 900 people, uh, unreal, unreal amounts. But that wasn't the big show because like that was only a $20,000 prize purse, but there were still a thousand people competing for it. Um, ultimately though, like being able to go to something like that, a one day tournament, you know, a one day, all day round one starts at nine. If you win the whole thing, you're home by, you know, you're out of there by nine. It's a 12 hour affair if you win the whole thing. But those also need to be taken care of, need to be advertised. They need to be propped up where it's not just about, like you said, oh, well, we we just gave somebody an envelope behind the scenes and they went home and then it was never spoken about. What I like mm-hmm. about Flesh and Blood and what Flesh and Blood is doing right now is... I don't know if it's just organically or the fact that the community has sort of taken the reins on this, 
but they have taken the competitors and turned them into heroes themselves. They've turned them into focal points and spotlights uh, to promote the game, and they have shown up and said, hey, it's not just about watching the competition. You want to watch this person play this deck because it is something to behold. And I think that if Star Wars U can start propping up the 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 emerging heroes in the game, it might entice some of those players to continue onward when they feel like they are in themselves a little bit of a celebrity in within the game. Because look at somebody like Brody Spurlock from Flesh and Blood. The, mm-hmm. the kid's not even 18. He's been crushing it for a year and a half now, but everybody knows who this kid is. And, you know, thankfully, this is he's a, a, a incredible human being through and through. And... Flesh and Blood digs into that. They want to hear more from these these personalities who have either established themselves through content creation, but at the same vein, they put them on the same echelon. If you're winning tournaments and are a good person, we are going to put you in the spotlight and we're going to elevate you. I think Flesh and Blood is a good example of when uh, you have a community come in that has a lot of people in it that uh, you know come from a competitive card game background or an esports background and like are already in tune with the star building aspect of it and know how important that is to you know kind of create a mythos around the game that helps keep people engaged and have give them something to aspire to be right and so the the support for these players and the star building was so good in this game early on and that came from the community but it also came from legend story studios as well that did a lot of good job uh, uh, i thought having articles um on their website that talked about these players uh, highlighting them on broadcast from time to time um it all comes down to the community i think in the, in, in the biggest way but there was a lot of support all around for that so I'd love to see that in this game, too. I, I think, you know, there are already a bunch of people interested in the game that, that are also interested in star building and, and building that, you know, mythos and extended universe for the uh, for SWU, as it will. So I'm sure that'll happen, but it's it would be good to get support from the company making the game uh, as well. Uh, that, that goes a long way, so. All righty. Uh, the other little aspect here is, frankly, just the structure, and I think we dig, dug into it a little mm-hmm. bit already where you know grassroots small time stuff do you guys have an ideal structure in mind already i mean we've seen so many different variations and such but uh like from the fact that i can go on any wednesday night to uh, my lgs to play in an armory uh, all the way to you know well it's pro quest season or it's rtn season road to national season and then I can go to whatever battle hardens I want to. Then the tier above mm-hmm. that is callings. Do you have a built-in kind of structure in mind that you think would be a successful, you know, framework? I really like the way Flesh and Blood does it, honestly. Like, I, you've got the locals, and then even at the big events, yeah, you've got the battle hardens and the callings you can play in, even if you're not, you know, in, in the big show, so to speak. Um, and that's been fun for me personally, you know, because I'd... I there was a time in my life where I did have the time to grind and like get to that level and and compete you know with the best but that time is you know over now, um, so I like to just go in and you know see how far I can get in some of these uh, other events. So I I like that aspect of it too, where you still feel like you're playing in something important, but it's not obviously like the the highest of heights you know, and that's okay for for someone like me that's still competitive but knows that I will not be like a pro in a game again probably so probably. We'll see. You never know. Probably not. I, I, 
I, I just want to go out on a limb and say that I like the skeleton of the structure that we've already seen from FFG. So mm. they did that kind of deep dive on explaining how they wanted to approach the kind of casual player friendly formats. And while we haven't got our deep dive on their organized play yet, we do know that they have, you know, some level of tournaments that are going to be, you know, the planetary, the regionals, the sectors, and that those are going to vary in accessibility, but also wait for tournament points. I think that that's fine. When I look at that, that very much feels to me similar to what Flesh and Blood does with Battle Hardens, with Callings and Pro Tour events, right? These different scaled events that are still worth traveling to, but mm -hmm. they might have a different weight uh, in terms of what they count toward for the year. I think the real question isn't so much that structure as it is the frequency, because one of the frequent complaints I do get about Flesh and Blood is that you know, early in the game, there was event fatigue. That's uh, the best way I know how to put it, right? There was a lot mm. of players that were like, man, there's like a, a calling every month. And like, I want to go to all of them, but I obviously can't afford to. But if I don't go to one, I feel like I'm missing out. So some of the feedback was, hey, we got to spread these out a little bit. And then this year it was like, okay, you overcorrected because now it's okay. There's one pro tour and everyone's like, all right, once that's done, I just feel like I'm waiting and then we're going to go to worlds, but then you hit holiday season and then I feel like I'm waiting. So I think trying to find that perfect middle ground and it's not going to happen right away. You obviously got to feel it out, but I think that just making sure that you always have a way to keep that carrot for the competitive players. So they feel engaged and feel like they're building towards something. A lot of the competitive players will play at locals to prepare for whatever the next big event is, for example. So if there is no next big event for six months, then they stop playing locals until, you know, they're two or three months out. So mm. for me, I think that the structure they've kind of outlined is good. It's just getting the right frequency and cadence. The, that's an argument that early on, like right now, like you mentioned, it went from event fatigue where people were complaining that, hey, there's too many events. Like, come on, relax. Like. I can't do. I can't play this game every weekend. And nobody was like forcing people to play every weekend. It was just the fact that hey, it's there if you want it. And people were like, I I can't go. Even though like sure. so and people. And it's funny because like the response would be like, so don't. Like I I don't know what else to. to <laughs> and with like PTIs too, that you you know players that have that don't need to be on the grind. You know theoretically, if you've got your your pro tour invite, then you can play as much or as little as you want to until pro tour. You know. Sure. And right now, I think that the the criticism against flesh and blood structure is that there's i think the right amount of events it's just there's certain regions and areas that are just getting left out and that often mm. oftentimes is like a logistical issue it's a cost issue of yeah. where you're doing it look i live in canada we don't have callings we don't have battle hardens we don't and it's like it's sad because at there was a time where some of the best players in the world were from here and we just never had it so the amount of canadians that are constantly checking costs and flights to go down south to go to the u.s to play in these events but it's a costly endeavor usually it's a van of like seven dudes that are driving around and 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 oftentimes like doing really well at these tournaments but i think that that's the right thing is it has to be options and it has to be sprinkled enough around where nobody's feeling left out because even the person who might say i wish i can go to them but it's I just, it's not feasible for me to get from here to 
Dallas, let's say, they might be able to say, well, you know what? Like, if I wait another month or two, I can go to the one in Chicago because that's within drivable mm-hmm. distance. Like, these are options that I think um, Fantasy Flight needs to to pack in uh, at the same yeah. time. And they're they're a bit more of an, you know, I I don't know what their budget situation is for this kind of thing yet, but like uh, they they are a more established company than a company like Legend Story that makes flesh and blood. That's still a growing company, and they're still very focused on sustainability. You know, making sure that they don't you know bankrupt themselves doing all this kind of stuff, which is a smart thing to do. You definitely do not want to overspend if you're a, a you know still a relatively small growing company, even if you do have a successful product. Whereas, you know, Fantasy Flight has been around for years and released. Many, many, many successful products, uh, some even in the Star Wars universe already. So you you would hope, you would imagine that there is a little bit more plan to, to go a little bit more robust with this kind of thing. Fingers crossed. Fingers are definitely crossed. Uh, there is competition out there, though, however, within the competitive scene. That's what I mentioned uh, at the onset of this conversation was that I have we all have friends that are picking and choosing based off of what makes sense for them time-wise. And I just want to give sure. people a little bit of a snapshot of what what is out there currently. Uh, at the top echelon, there's the Magic uh, Magic the Gathering World Championships is a $1 million prize pool. Not, for, not annually. For that one event. Now, to qualify for it, it's incredibly difficult to qualify for. However, uh, first place is going to walk away with 100, 100 grand. That's one thing. Next up, Flesh and Blood World Championships is going to happen in November in Barcelona. $300,000 prize pool, $100,000 to first place. Uh, Battle Spirit Saga Pro Tour that just concluded. You casted that, Charmer. $100,000 mm-hmm. for uh, the prize pool, 25 Gs, first place. So there are certainly options out there. I couldn't get numbers for One Piece, but I did get the fact that One Piece, for talking about structure, I'm going to put the graphic up on the screen for, for those with the, who are watching us on YouTube. But there is multiple paths to get to your national championships uh, and then culminating in a world championship. So there are plenty of options that are out there. So, you know, Star Wars Unlimited has to be aware of the fact that they need to give people a reason, not just to say, well, I can do one or the other. It's I need to invest the time and the money to buy the ge- buy the game, learn the game, and then compete in the game. So they have that uh, barrier, that additional barrier of entry in order to compete with these massive, massive prize pools that already exist. It's so interesting because I feel like we're seeing, you know, it, it is a new golden age of, of card games where there's just a lot out and a lot to play in. But I feel like we're seeing a new sort of era of of card game pros where it's it's just it almost reminds me of the FGC where it's not enough to be pro in one game. You have to be pro uh, and when I say FGC I mean fighting game community on the esports side. You need to be, you know, pro in a bunch of different games um because no one game is going to, you know, probably sustain you as a as a living, right? So these people that are choosing to, you know, pursue this living do have to become pros in multiple games and so now we do have a point where there is so much to pick from you know like you're saying like you know what do i choose what do i put my time into and uh it's it's gonna be interesting to see how this all kind of shakes out uh, a few years down the road um because there's a lot of good stuff out there right now but eventually you know we are gonna see some systems and some games kind of start to rise at the top and and sort of start to push out some of the other ones but and we'll see it's it's interesting 
Star Wars, funny enough, back when the the last age like this, Star Wars was one of the IPs that did push a lot of the other games out. It was Magic Star Wars, and yeah, I don't know what would, what would you say the third Pokemon probably if we're talking about late nineties, yeah, yeah, Pokemon early two thousands, yep, Yu Gi Oh for Yu Gi Oh Yu Gi Oh for sure started to have that rise there as well, especially for regions like Asia. Um, sure, Yu Gi Oh is huge and, there. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of lump it together with Star Wars, but I would also say you have to put Lord of the Rings in there because Decipher supported the Lord of the Rings and the Star Wars game very well up until the company folded due to the embezzlement scandal. So, because uh, like I went to the first world championship for Lord of the Rings and that mm. had a massive turnout. So, yeah. there's uh, one thing though, I think that, um, and again, like, the Lorcata is releasing, I think, uh, in a couple days uh, from us recording this. If you're catching this on launch day it, re- it released yesterday uh ultimately the one thing about Lorcana that uh you know of all the reasons that you might like it or dislike it one of the reasons that a lot of people are actually not actively giving it a hard look is because they came out of the box and just frank frankly said oh there's no competitive play there's we don't we don't have a competitive structure we don't have a, a an organized play system and a lot of people were like what like really like that seems to be the baked in necessity these days when it comes to card games. And then they kind of mm-hmm. rolled it back. They actually, they ran it back and said, whoa, 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 whoa. What we mean to say is we don't have one for, for, you know, 2024, uh, you know, or 2023 through till 2024, but we will eventually have one, which I think is them just saying like, okay, this was a massive oversight on our side. And we it's have so to- bizarre. Oh yeah, for sure. Trust was- me. Of all the things that are bizarre about, the Lorcana launch in Ravensburger. This is just this easily gets lost within the fray. I have no idea what the story is. There, obviously, this is just wild speculation. But I, I wonder if there was even some sort of thing with Disney where they were like, "Well, we want this to be a pure for fun thing," so they encourage them not to do it at least initially. But then, you know, Star Wars is also owned by Disney. But uh, I, I guess it's not quite as kid friendly as something like Lorcana would be. So I'm I'm just very curious. I have no idea. But uh, it's a fun thing to kind of speculate on. Because, yeah, if you're releasing a card game in this card game era, organized play should be like one of the default checks you have to like check as you go through what you're going to be doing with this release. Yeah, The point there, like just to sort of summarize, was the fact that there are people who just said, well, there's no competitive play. So I'm not I'm not even in it. I'm not going to. I'm not going to give it a look. Uh, And for some people, that is literally the line in the sand. So I I don't know any reasonings or uh, I don't have any inside info, but I I will say I think one of the reasons that Lorcana probably wrote it off is because they didn't feel like they needed it to generate appeal for some of their like collectors and chase stuff. That's certainly true. Yeah, because one of the things when I think about competitive play and I think about like Flesh and Blood, for example, Flesh and Blood obviously had prize pool stuff. But another one of the big drivers for wanting to compete in those events, especially the early ones, was that you could earn those coveted gold foils. And those were also selling for a lot of money because they were selling for a lot. And that was the way that you got them. And that's, I think, another piece of the puzzle that is important to the competitive play is that. If you have these kind of coveted things you can only get through competitive play, that also is a way where you can kind of entice players without amping up the prize pool, right? Like if your prize pool is you're going to win 10 grand, but there's a card you can sell for five grand on the secondary market, like that's going to be a big driver. And Flesh and Blood saw that. They were almost in many ways printing money with some of those gold foils early on. I mean, they still are, but early Mm -hmm. on it was a, a really big driver. I don't think 
Lorcana needs to do that because you already have the Disney adults. So they probably just said, why, if we don't have to, people are going to eat it up anyway. That's true. Yeah. I think that's fair. That is definitely I think fair. it's a, it's a, you know, it hurts me in my competitive gaming soul, but, uh, but you, that is a good point. Yeah. So those EA tunics or the, whatever the tunics, those, uh, final spring tunics from like the first season of competitive flesh and blood if you won like a road to nationals in that first season i think you were awarded it was either a gold foil tunic or an extended art tunic um the, you know how much those are selling for now uh quite a bit i would imagine i, I think they're between 10 and 20 g's i was gonna say yeah. the, the last graded one i saw was around 20 now, yeah. granted that was high grade but nonetheless mm. the fact that imagine paying twenty dollars to enter your your local tournament your little store championship tournament winning it getting a card and then sitting on it for two years two years not like where lotus territory is two years and you're flipping it for 20 grand it's unreal but this is the mentality that friends of ours look at when they go and enter tournaments for example for one piece when I started learning One Piece, the, I said, you know, like they were teaching me the game, and our good friend Brian Basoko said, the hardest part about One Piece is registering for a tournament because they're capped, and everybody knows mm. that if you manage to sign up, the promo that you get at the door for walking in, you could turn around to the vendor and sell it for $200 because they're that coveted, they're that in demand, and... That, and, and it's unreal. And and they're like, everything after that is gravy. So show, it's basically, they said it's it's the toughest part. These these tournaments used to sell out in under a minute. They'd get mm. all registered and people would set their alarms and, and go nuts for these things. So just to sort of wheel this back, I mean, can we summarize, I suppose, some of the dot points here before we get to the mailbag of like how to entice players? Like if you were, if, if each of us were to give one major little piece here, what would it be? Strong local community. Great prize support and structure. Yeah, and I will say options and, and locations. That, that makes sense. I think that, that holy trinity definitely is kind of what needs to be hammered down. And then I promise you, I think the game is good enough that people will not be turned away by it. But... Like you said, Doa, people are right now, like these grinders are in this this mindset of, okay, but like it's got to be worth my time. And that's yeah. and that's where we're at. Well, not a bad uh, discussion. And I think we actually kept this one within a nice little, you know, time bubble. We Probably could, good, yeah. I think the fact that we didn't get like 42 spoiler cards this week helped us out on that one. But we do have a nice little hefty mailbag to, to, to run through, so... Mm. Without further ado, let's get to the bad feeling mailbag. I got a bad feeling about this. I have a bad feeling about this. I've got a bad feeling about hey. Quiet. All right, so the bad feeling mailbag. We got a bunch of questions, actually. We're going to try to get to, uh, through them as, as fast as possible, as many as we can. If we can't, they go in the vault. We'll revisit them down the line. Who wants to, who wants to go first? I'll, I'll take the first one, sure. So... Kenny Blanco, I'm, I'm assuming that it's Kenny, is uh, Twitter handle is K Blanco, but it's at Kenny White. Blanco is Spanish for white. Anyway, 
Uh, they say, have you guys heard anything about sideboards or best of three matches in this game? Personally, I don't want sideboards, mainly because you usually have to acquire 10 to 15 more rares for your deck, but it also creates lopsided matchups when you draw the specific hate cards. So I have not heard anything personally, and the devs didn't mention anything to me when I spoke to them at Gen Con, so I guess we'll have to wait and see. I would, however, like to echo what Kenny has said. I'm very anti-sideboard. Like, I'm on record as being anti-sideboard because I think that it is a crutch for game development. I think that what happened was is the early sets of Magic the Gathering had some really lopsided, as Kenny mentions here, one-sided cards that really polarized matchups. And the way that Magic made up for that mistake was by adding the sideboards. But then because that was the standard for Magic, every card game since then has done it. But I don't think you have to. I'm just of the opinion that you should just design your game better and if you're going to do sideboards, then I prefer something like Flesh and Blood, where it's a pre-sideboard so that you're not going in and out in between every game in a best of three. Like it should just be a one and done thing. But I uh, I'm on record, not just for this game, but for all games is saying like I'm just anti sideboard as a, a person. Usually I know it's the industry standard, but it's because of mistakes of the past. Hey, I'm right with you, man. I, I have always hated sideboards. I hated sideboarding and magic. I, you know. I, I do agree that it's implemented better in Flesh and Blood, but I still don't like it. I just want to build a deck and play that deck, and that's it. The old Star Wars game, no sideboarding. Just saying. Yeah, you don't need sideboarding to have a good game. You just need to... I, I agree on the balance front, too. Yeah. If it's well-balanced, you shouldn't need to be uh, throwing in these extra hate cards for certain matchups. Yeah. So, so here's why I think that um, this game can potentially get away with no sideboards. And the reason why partially Magic needs sideboards is because 40% of the deck is lands. And you can't just fit everything mm. you want into a 60-card deck. And Flesh and Blood... I think it's because there are so many intricate particular matchups where some of the cards you have don't do anything. Uh, so you have to kind of have something. But the way that they do it, again, I think is the right way. The reason why I think that Star Wars Unlimited can get away with not having it um, is that it's like 50-card decks, I think, is a, is like their, their standard constructed. Um, I think I it's... That, yeah. yeah. And... All 50 of those cards can become lands, can become resources, so you don't need to devote any percentage of your deck just to resource generation. Uh, so you have more opportunity to tinker and put things in based on your prognostication of what the meta is going to be like in the tournament that you're entering. That said, do I want sideboards? Yes, I do. Very concise, small, five to seven card sideboards. No more than 10. I think that 10 is even pushing it. Um, wherein the game is so short and could potentially be so rock, paper, scissors. We don't know yet. But if that's the case, you need you need sideboards because some of these games are 10 minutes. Some of them are 20. And if a round is an hour, you need sideboards to shore up where you're getting dunked on. And sometimes you cannot fit that within your 50-card deck. Keep it concise. Six to 10 cards. Uh, and I think that that, to me, is the right the right recipe. Just build a better deck and you won't get dunked on. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Just and just accept good. that in a card game, there's always going to be a good matchup and a bad matchup. Good, you know? good. Get good. Darn yeah. it. Ultimately, <laughs> just get good. Yeah. All right. I'll take the next one. It's from Echo Base Gaming. Uh, friend of the show, we'll say. Friend of the show, Echo Base Gaming. 
what would you say is better for the competitive organized play? A galactic champion that's a galactic championship that's relatively easy to qualify for, so mo- more people can compete, or should it be hard to qualify for so you only a select group can compete? I am a staunch believer in if you're playing in a world championship, you shouldn't just be able to walk in off the street and potentially win it. And I understand the whole, well, hey, a chip in a chair, you never know, you throw the Hail Mary, and that's the whole scenario. Nuh-uh. I I think that national championships should have more or less a easy free roll to get into, and then if you place well there, uh, but in my opinion, world championships are for the players who have uh, essentially established themselves as world-class players have, over time, accumulated enough experience or placing placement of themselves and tournaments or won a tournament that has granted them permission to get in there or, or access to the tournament. To me, the world championship is something like a couple hundred players from all around the world who have qualified vari- through various means. I honestly believe that it shouldn't be exquisitely hard. It shouldn't be like a one per country situation, but I think that it should also be restricted enough where if you want to if you want to play and qualify for the world championships this is something that you got to be thinking about in like 6 months out it's like well i really want to get into this what is my path like you have to plan it out i got to play in this and if i don't do well here i could play here and here and here it is to me the pedestal that you're putting the true competitors on yeah i i agree for the most part i think it's cool to have uh your bigger tournaments be something that you do have to work to get to and qualify for. And, you know, again, I'll, I'll say what I said earlier, where I think at those events, it's important to have side events that feel important as well that anyone can come off the street and play in. Um, and there's also other things you can do, too. I, I think something that's been kind of underutilized, and again, this goes kind of in the broadcasting side, but I love to see more invitationals in these card games where we have, like, a, you know, a tournament of champions and that kind of thing, you know? Uh, where it's like a small, maybe 16-person thing that's very well-produced that people can follow along. Um, that kind of thing is is uh, very cool and very good at star-building. We've seen uh, communities put together that kind of stuff, like uh, uh, Goliath Gauntlet in uh, Flesh and Blood, I think is a good example of an invitational-type thing that's that's cool. Um, and But yeah, I, I, I do think at the highest level it should be something that you have to qualify for that you can't just kind of show up in, you know, especially World Championship. Yeah. Well, the good news is I asked about this at Gen Con because this is very near and dear to me. And it was also on the forefront of my mind because in Flesh and Blood, for example, I did not qualify for Worlds this year, but I'm going to Worlds and I'm going to play in the Calling there, which is essentially a side event. Granted, that's a large scale one, but it's still a Mm -hmm. side event for Worlds. And so I said, hey, when you're doing these big events, because it's very clear that you are qualifying, they kept mentioning tournament points for their events. So I think that you're going to have to have a certain number of tournament points in order to qualify. That's my assumption, but I, I know that they used that term, right? So I was saying, Hey, if you're going to be attending these, are you going to have side events? Because part of the fun of like a world championship is the spectacle. And obviously they didn't give me details, but uh, Josh told me we will always make sure that there is something for anybody who wants to participate, you know, for them to do at one of our events. So it's very apparent that they already have side events on their mind. And I think it would be very cool. You know, Flake was kind of talking about, you know, when you should start planning for when you want to qualify. I think that just to give people a reason to even attend something like a Worlds if you didn't qualify is that whatever those side events are should be 
like the day one start of qualifying for the next year. So like if you've qualified for Worlds, participating in Worlds also should give you X number of tournament points, I think, for the following year. But then the people that are there for the side events should also that should be like day one of the next season, if you will, to culminate in the following Worlds. Mm. And then you kind of rinse and repeat. Beauty. And when you talk about tournament points, I my mind immediately abbreviated it to TP, and then the first thing that came to mind was Beavis as Cornholio seeking TP. Oh, no. You <laughs> so, got to get your swoo TP. You yeah, <laughs> TP for my swoo hole. Yes. The acronyms are not working in this game. Uh, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's not the, the thing. All right. Uh, I think we got yeah. time for I'll, one last one, Doa. Yeah. Sure. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, the funny that I actually know this guy, uh, Thomas uh, Brigman. Sorry if I I've, if I mess up your pronunciation of your last name. I played against this guy in uh, in Copenhagen in the Flesh and Blood Outsiders pre-release. Actually, in Copenhagen. He's the op- <laughs> yes, I was in Copenhagen doing uh, Rainbow Six, and uh, and I was I went to local stores to play, and he's the offensive coordinator for the Danish American football team. Uniquely, very very interesting. Well, yeah, very cool. That is but, cool. Uh, Great guy. Uh, his question is, uh, what would your preferred price support be? I think it means price support there. Um, I I would love to see cool uh, alternate art chase cards like we've seen in other games become kind of the norm. Um, I, I love that kind of thing. I am I think like a lot of us are, we're collectors as well as competitors. And so having that exclusive kind of really cool looking chase card to, uh, you know, get from your locals to, you know, get from like winning a tournament, uh, whether you want to sell that and that's part of the income related with that. I think that's great. Um, but I also just like having those things and keeping them and, and collecting them and knowing that I have this unique thing. So yeah, as far as prize support is, I would love, love, love to see those really neat, very fancy alternate art cards too. And and if I could levy a little bit of criticism towards what I've seen with Fu so far, is that I don't I know there are different artists working on the game, but I don't see enough differentiation between the art styles. Everything seems to be kind of pushed towards this sort of a little bit more comic booky, a little bit more cartoony kind of style. And I would like to see the style of art on these cards expand a little bit more. And obviously I know there's all sorts of licensing thing that goes into this. Um it's again, you know, very big intellectual property in Star Wars, and I'm sure there's lots of very specific requirements for how these characters and how this universe is portrayed visually, but at the same time, um, you know, as someone who, who's, who's who's got an art degree, um, I love art, and I'd love to see more of an expansion in what kind of art we see on these cards, too. So seeing that in the prize support would be very cool. So, so there's my long, uh, long-winded answer to that. Now, I don't know if, Charmer, if it was your turn in Warhammer 40k that you went back to your table, or you had, some, <laughs> you had a, a loot bag that you came to get for us but so i wanted to grab some visual aids for those of us that are watching us on youtube but i will also still obviously verbally describe things i think that one alternate art versions of cards is fantastic that should be uh just mandatory and everything that doa said is is great in my opinion i do think that there is room for more card game companies just in general to kind of expand on the types of things that you can earn or or get at events whether it's for participation or winning Mm -hmm. so battle spirit saga for example uh they have deck boxes that are specific to certain tiers of winning so like the one that i'm holding right now this is something that I, i forget it's either top eight or top 16 at like the big events or whatever right they also have mats that you can earn i have one of those back there 
Uh, these are not it, but these are the cores you use in Battle Spirits. There are like winner's cores where you get like metal ones and there's like a shiny like silver soul core. So when I think about the cool tokens that we're already getting from Game Genic that are plastic, it'd be really cool if we had some like metal tokens that were specific or special. Like imagine a cool gold shield token. So like I grabbed, these are the fab metal tokens. This one was a mm-hmm. specific for Pro Tour Baltimore like exclusive. Um, but just stuff like that, right? I think that there are a lot of ways that you can give cool stuff out that's not just cards that would still make somebody feel, you know, good for participating. Because I'm just like you, Doa. I like having all of that stuff for my own personal collection and nostalgia. And I think that some of those things are great ways to support a game outside of the alternate art stuff. But I think that you have to have that as oh, yeah. well. Like you, you've got to have like that cool chase thing that everybody wants and you can show off and bling. Well, Fantasy Flight has already done this in other games. I played the Legend of the Five Rings LCG for, you know, a lot of years before that was ended and and one of the things you could get playing at locals was like cooler versions of the tokens in that game. So I'd be shocked if we didn't have that in uh in Star Wars Unlimited as well and and I do think that's fun too. The chase cards are the cool thing, but alternate tokens is also, you know, any sort of like way you can bling out your game is all is always a good thing, I think. So Thomas just got cash is king ultimately, but he that was not an option that we were allowed to to uh to choose. So I'm going to go sure. with immortalization and here's where I'm going oh. with this. You win a pro tour, you win worlds, you win one of the big ones, and I'm talking not like a calling level thing. I, I mean like the big one. You get to be immortalized in a card, or you get to design a card, or something Ooh. along those lines. And okay. I know that that hmm. can be tricky because not everybody who's a great card gamer is not necessarily a good card designer. However, mm-hmm. you could work with the design team, give them an idea of what you want. Like, oh, I would love a card that kind of does something like this. And then the team will put something together. Now, whether it's, it could just be something like it becomes an armory promo or an FNM promo or something like that, that is not legal in standard or competitive play, but it's given to players that they can play casually, that they can play in if there's like a, a commander version of, of this kind of game or commander format where it's or or they just take the leader that the dude won with or whoever the person is that won with and they put them as drawn as the leader character instead and say, hey, congratulations, we're going to get this done for you. We're going to have it printed and we're going to send it to you. And I think that that is something that is a one of one. It is something that is not just going to have financial value, but for the person who wins with that particular hero, if you look at like Pro Tour winners like Matt Folks and Pablo Pintor and Michael Fang, who won uh, the three Pro Tours in Flesh and Blood, they get their hero they won with with the stamp on it of Pro Tour champion whatever. Those cards are worth, are sold for about I think Pablo Pintor sold for between thirty and thirty-five thousand USD, uh, mm. unreal amounts. And but again, it, it's because his face wasn't on it or anything, so it's a little bit more coveted. But if you're talking about a, a cheap way to to give somebody something that they'll, whether they have it physically or not, they are immortalized with that particular card. I think that that is something that would be super cool. And of course, wrestling belts like wrestling belts are the coolest trophies <laughs> i i like the belt um i'm, I'm I on like board i yeah oh, go ahead i was just gonna say uh 
the other one that I was going to say is a requirement in my mind because I have always wanted to win one in anything. Uh, it's got to have an oversized check. Like I just, when you present, oh, yeah. I don't that's care if the prize money is like a hundred bucks. Give me the oversized check. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fun. I mean, we used to, I, you know, they used to do that uh, at Starcraft tournaments. I casted like 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago now. And so then you'd have the winner, like carry it into the casino and like joke, try to cash it and stuff like that. It's, it's fun, but um, I, I, the immortalization, I, I want to see it done in, in kind of more of a sportsy kind of way, right? Where like at the next worlds, right? At, at this, the year after you have a banner with the previous winner on it and like maybe what, you know, what, uh, aspects they played or something like that. And then you just build the banners up hanging in the uh, arena over the oh, years, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, something like that. It, when you get into like card alters with the person or something then you run into a lot of legal things so i can tell you where star wars is involved this would never happen imagine is uh, as, as cool a, a that it banner. Would be. go okay, ahead hear me out imagine a banner and it looks like the galactic senate and every time oh. there's a winner you put somebody <laughs> in one of the senate seats yeah i like time. it i like it uh, uh i i think that's I think that's cool. Some Star Warsy kind of way of doing it for sure. Yeah. So um, I I do like the exclusive, you know, one of cards that you you know that they like they do in Flesh and Blood, like Flake mentioned. You know, where it's it doesn't necessarily have your name on it or anything, but it is an exclusive, a very exclusive kind of thing. But then other ways to immortalize the names of the people um, via you know banners or maybe like Magic used to release like tournament winning decks as a thing where it had like an alternate back so you couldn't you know use it in competitive play but you could like have that deck and play it and and have fun with that so there are plenty of ways to kind of like do that sort of stuff but the point is it, it it's it doesn't matter as much how it's done uh aside than that it's done and it just should be done in some way i'm going to totally use your example charmer to bookend this episode by saying so this is how the episode ends with terrible <laughs> ideas <laughs> that's a fantastic well, idea great idea they're great ideas i know i just had to i would give that idea thunderous applause in uh, fact <laughs> yeah for the for the record though that line for as as you know media mediocrely the that the prequels may have been written that that mm -hmm. line was pretty good i thought that was some good writing this is how liberty dies to thunderous applause. That's a that's a pretty good line. I'm getting no support here. <laughs> uh, I just right. didn't want to give the thunderous applause. I didn't want to feed into yeah, it. Yeah, I I yep. We'll just I wanted you to have the spotlight there. Thank you. All right. Well, friends, thank you so much you again. Are the Senate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much to everybody for tuning in to this episode of Wampa Radio. If you want to contact us, give us some suggestions for topics to discuss, or just hit us with the mailbag, some questions, you can do so by uh, the email, which has been bumping lately at wamparadiopodcast at gmail.com. Twitter at wamparadio. You can contact me at watchflake. Doa is at at ggdoa. And then there's at that charm 3r. Uh, you can also poke and prod us. Yeah, I mean, that's the leet speak from back in the day. <laughs> Little 1337 action for all of you who uh, probably have gray hair now. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> uh, ultimately, friends, we do appreciate you listening to Wampa Radio. And uh, yeah, Charmer. Charmer, are you locked? Are you loaded? He is, he says. All right, well, take it away, my friend. May the force be with you. you.